Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Mr. James Fair, who is the Senior Vice President of Technical Operations at Executech. Um, we're going to be talking about managed services, uh, cybersecurity, and maybe some uh, motivational things like Tony Robbins. So, hey, James, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Mark. Thanks for the invite. I love you. what you're doing out there. Uh, anybody who, who's out there getting the, getting the word out, making us more safe and more secure, I appreciate that. We're trying. One, one episode at a time. Hey, so um, whereabouts are you? I'm in Salt Lake City, sir. Salt Lake City. I just drove through there on my... Um, my journey south to find some sun. I went through Salt Lake, spent the night there actually, went up to Park City, had an, a great lunch. Uh, it's beautiful up there. And then, it is. Um, did you find some sun? I did. Well, you know, when I really got the sun was when I got down to St. George. I spent a couple of days there riding my bike around and uh, getting all the vitamin D. And now I'm down in uh, northern Arizona, Prescott area. So, uh, yeah, awesome. it's a good time, good time of the year to be out of Seattle. I don't know if you heard, but <laughs> we're, we're basically having biblical type floods up there right now. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, so tell, tell us a little bit, um, about Executech and then, and then also just to set the context, your role, um, in terms of the, uh, the senior VP of technical operations. Sure. Uh, so we are the largest MSP in the West at the moment. Um, we are probably our target niche is small to medium businesses. And we really provide all aspects of it that we can. So everything from printers and phones to networks to servers to cloud, uh, cybersecurity, we try to cover it all. We, we consider ourselves the IT department for most organizations that we work with. Uh, myself, I take care of the Utah region. So any mm -hmm. technical or customer uh, interactions, clients here in Utah are under my purview. Uh, I get to serve those folks. And uh, I also get the, get the privilege of looking for and teaching tomorrow's leaders here at Executech. I'm really big on teaching leadership, leadership skills. I have a belief that if I can uh, empower tomorrow's leaders or today's leaders, then they're going to go home a little happier. Their team will be happier. And there's a ripple effect to that, I believe. No, that that's definitely true. I mean, if, if you can help people to improve themselves, it's a very rewarding experience. Plus it helps the organization overall, right? Um, exactly. Back to, uh, you know, Executech, for people who don't know, MSP is a managed service provider. Um, and basically, what you you know, you do what you just said. You go into companies and say, hey, you know, instead of building out your own IT team, um, we can, you can outsource some of those responsibilities to us. Um, in, in your role, in the context of security, what type of security services um, are, you, are you providing? Um, we're trying to be an, an all-in-one shop at the moment. Uh, we don't offer the three, we don't have a SOC or a secure operations center. So we don't offer, offer rather, uh, 24 by seven monitoring, but we do offer some, uh, certainly antivirus, uh, hardening, you know, um, gap analysis will do we'll help people with compliance challenges that they're having. Uh, we're big on helping people create uh, breach for, uh, breach policies, you know, any kind of policies they need for security. Mm -hmm. definitely help with that as well. And then we do offer a product we call TDP. It's a, a threat detection and prevention. It's not quite the full-blown DOD level 24-7 monitoring, but it's certainly better than 
I think most organizations have. So we're going to offer some basic services and basic protection levels just to try to pe- try to move the needle for folks, get them at least way better than where they are right now. There's that theory that if there's two cars and one has an alarm and one doesn't, the thieves are going to go after the one without the alarm. Right. They go after the easy, soft targets. So um, yep. let me ask you, I mean, do companies, are they eager to outsource their security or are companies, do they feel kind of protective? Like, hey, you know what, this is something that we need to keep in, in-house. Or is there kind of a mix? Yeah, it really depends on the size of the organization I've found. So most of the SMB space, it's someone doing IT is probably in finance or, you know, it's a CFO frequently, a controller or something like that. And and IT security just isn't their thing. And when they look at it and realize the size and scope of it, they tend to get in overwhelm and rather someone else come in at least give them a path. So one of the things that we, that we're, good at that we offer are IT roadmaps. So we're going to try to figure out what is coming for you, what's a good path, what meets the budget, and put together some security things. So we're not trying to throw it all in at once and make them spend, you know, tons of money, but rather put a path together so at least they're headed in the right direction. Sure. It makes makes a lot of sense. Um, in in terms of if you were just to engage like the, the initial conversation, and again, this is in the context of security, what are some of the questions that you'd be asking your uh, potential customers? Well, uh, unfortunately, due to, you know, everyone's seen ransomware these days. So my number one question is, do you have backups? Are they secure? Are they offsite? Are they set up with different credentials? Um, then we start looking at things like, you know, how badly do you want that data back if it's gone? Um, do you separate data out into the various buckets, uh, you know, public, confidential, and private? Um, what are you guys doing for, are you guys or gals doing for, uh, multi-factor authentication? That's a common one. You know, I think it's probably an easy win these days is MFA for everybody. Um, let me ask you that the initial cover. Yeah, go ahead. Cause you know, you, you give advice on the policy side. So, um, you know, MFA can be in, incredibly protective, but it also can be kind of a hassle. So, you know, what kind of policy guidance or advice do you give in terms of, you know, implementing MFA? Oh, I it just, you got to do it. I, I realize it's a pain, it, you know, any, I think security and ease of use are probably at opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Is the more secure we make it, the most secure server is the one unplugged sitting in the middle of the server uh, room, but it's not very effective that way. Ease of use would allow no passwords. We would just log into what we want. So we got to find a happy medium, something that allows users to still do what they need and yet be protected and secured. And unfortunately, MFA has just become, in my opinion, a necessity these days. I think you're running a huge risk without it, and it's an easy to implement, easy to win, uh, you know, secure method that really moves the needle a lot in a very small amount of effort. Agree with you 100%, but would you advise, you know, MFA every time you log in or only if you're, you know, off-prem or if you're, you know, using a remote uh, login or... You know, when when would you advise? And would it also matter on the person's role or? Yeah, I mean, uh, we will do it. So as far as email goes, I'd recommend it all the time that you can, particularly for any device that leaves outside the network. Absolutely, you want to make sure you have MFA enabled. There are certain scenarios where it probably isn't necessary, such as if you're connecting to Azure, but you're coming from a known secure location, the office, for instance, then perhaps we don't turn it on then for, for the VPN connections, for instance. But generally, 
Yeah, most everywhere you can. I certainly, uh, definitely for all external connections. So if it's a VPN connection, email, website, anything that's public facing, absolutely needs to have MFA on it, in okay. my opinion. Definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, in, in addition to MFA, what are some other kind of low hanging fruit that um, uh, that you would you know choose to implement? You mentioned backups, for example. Um, anything yeah. else? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hammer on backups all day and night just because it's critical. We've seen customers no longer in business because they didn't have offsite backups. And we've seen too many instances of ransomware where that recovers it. Uh, other things would include a breach policy, for instance. Uh, it's a pretty easy to put together item or list rather, which would be what do we do in the event of a suspected attack or breach? Because it's been discovered that the there can be a great deal of damage done from the time someone suspects an attack or, or sees something going on that shouldn't be until someone like an IT person can do something about it. And that, there can be a lot of damage in that time. So to reduce that, you want to train your employees to make sure that they know how to respond to that. What is their breach policy? What should be the first call, second call, third call? Um, what's that look like? And then you should train them, retrain them annually. Make sure everybody knows. Can you walk us through, okay, so let, let's picture a company that's, um, I don't know, 100 employees. Uh, they've outsourced uh, some, some of the you know, security-related services to you. Um, you know, you've advised them to create a breach policy. Can you kind of walk us through what, uh, you know, a, a kind of a templated breach policy? What are some of the key things that it would hit? Yeah, sure. And the complexity is going to depend on the, on the environment, of course. But generally, you want to contact an IT person immediately. You know, who, who's going to do something about it? Who can check to make sure this is legitimate and, and stop it? If so, um, at some point you may wish to involve certainly the C-levels, owners. They need to know about this kind of thing. If you have public-facing PR groups, uh, customer service advocates, that kind of thing, you may want to notify those folks. Law enforcement, right? Do we want to get uh, FBI involved? Is it that serious? Um, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, you want to involve a legal team. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, uh, and I don't want to advise people on legal aspects, but I have discovered in working in cybersecurity that the perspective of lawyers is often different from the perspective of IT people. Uh, there have been breaches where the company who was attacked then sent out credit repair, uh, credit monitoring for their customers, just to protect them, just in case it is on them or was their problem, their challenge. But that actually, uh, in court, made them appear guilty. So that's, you know, I would have said, yeah, absolutely. Send your, you know, be, be, be as positive as you can be helpful to your clients as much as possible, but lawyers and the courts may see it differently. So I certainly involve, uh, engaging with a legal team. If it gets bad, possibly a forensics group, right? If it is an attack and we do have to go back and perhaps we have to, you know, I'm never going to encourage this, but if we end up having to consider paying a ransom, you're going to want a forensics team in there. Uh, to figure out what happened, how we prevent it in the future, that kind of a thing. Excellent. Uh, I'm just curious, at what point do you think employees should flag a suspicious email or suspicious activity? So for example, I mean, I think we all get these uh, scam emails on a regular basis. Some of them have uh, attachments. Sometimes you get a fake uh, you know, s statement from, I don't know, it could be from Amazon or from your bank. And it clearly, sometimes it, it's, it's bogus, right? So do I have to, should I flag that to my IT people or should I just delete it? I mean, what, what's, what are best practices um, in your opinion? I would much rather receive every single one of those and 10 times a day. So that's something I'll do fairly frequently for clients is we'll go in and we'll give them a training 
on how to spot phishing email messages or fake email messages. And once that training happens, I'll see a, a huge rise in the amount of email we get from folks saying, is this legitimate? Should I pay attention to this? Should I click on this thing? Or, oops, I clicked on this, right? Should I not have? What can I, what should I do about it? And I appreciate every one of those. I would rather chase down a hundred fake ones than let one bad one through. So in my end, even if you know it's fake, if you send it over to your IT team, then they can at least go and engage blocking mechanisms to prevent it from coming to, to others who may not be quite so savvy as you, for instance. Can you talk a little bit about those blocking mechanisms? I mean, we have um, a variety of people listen to the show. So sometimes when we say stuff, sure. we, we you know get it, but sometimes it's uh, it's new for people. Yeah, no problem. Um, certainly a spam filter. I just, I, I think nowadays a spam filter is a necessity. It's one of those costs we should just implement everywhere. Uh, it Spam filters tend to, you know, like if I flag a, an email as spam, then maybe it prevents you and a thousand other people from getting that same message. So spam blockers are great for that. They will check your email for viruses and that kind of thing. They won't catch everything because it's a bit of a cat and mouse game between the spam the spammers and you know the anti-spam folks but you're going to get the vast majority of it knocked out and you know imagine if you have 20 or 30 less email messages to go through a day you're going to make your entire team more efficient and it's just worth the cost and and kind of a bit of an insurance policy but well worth it so that'd certainly be primarily it'd be uh spam blockers and then your your it team can do whitelist and block and blacklist we call them in other words if I receive a, a fake email message from some Gmail account, then your IT team can go in there and set that to be always be blocked for everyone in the company. Conversely, if you get an email message that's a false alert, it, it happens, right? When we're doing right. this, this cat and mouse game, we can get several email messages flagged as a false alert. It's came up as spam, even though it was a conversation I was in the middle of with some other organization. In that case, we can go whitelist that to make sure it doesn't happen again. Excellent. Um, it's funny you mentioned spam because I'm constantly fighting, a, a, a seems like a losing battle in one of my email accounts. It's, it's hotmail. I'll just put it out there. And I go through the, <laughs> you know, once a week, I'm just saying, I'm going to go and unsubscribe everything. And, uh, it's just, just, I don't know what happens, man. <laughs> it's just maybe quiet down for a few days and then it just picks back up. Any, um, any suggestions other than, uh, in addition to what you just mentioned? Yeah, I it's not much fun these days, but I do recommend having multiple email addresses. It's kind of a pain, but I run two. I run one that I share with family and friends, and I run one that I use exclusively for signing up for things online, doing online shopping, uh, that kind of a thing. As far as if you're already in that in the throes of that, well, unfortunately, unsubscribe actually can backfire. Uh, if I get an email message and I click the unsubscribe button and it was a fake email message sent to me, and they're probably phishing to see if that was a real email address. And by clicking the unsubscribe button, you've actually let them know this is, yes, this is a real email address and they go sign you up for a bunch of other stuff or send your, you know, sell your information to a bunch of other spammers. So it's better to, yeah, sorry. It's better to mark as spam in the case of some of these platforms, you can click a button that says mark as spam. Uh, and then the backend folks are supposed to try to watch for those and block them. Um, that's a much more effective method than unsubscribe, unless you know it's a legitimate, you know, right. online retailer that you really want to do unsubscribe for. From well, I'll keep trying, uh, and uh, I think the the, <laughs> the the advice of uh, using a separate email for online shopping. I mean, because that that I really is one of the biggest vectors. I mean, as soon as you sign up for or buy anything, boom, you get bombarded with a bunch of stuff. And yep. even if it's legit, it does kind of muddy the waters, so that possibly a a, a, a real 
you know, phishing attempt can sneak through because you're just bombarded with all this stuff, right? Um, right. Earlier, you mentioned uh, that, you know, you don't advise paying ransoms. Can, can you explain a little bit why? Well, sure. Um, essentially, you're funding the bad guys. And this is an ever-growing, unfortunately, in, uh, uh, organization, criminal organizations are getting involved in this and it's growing and growing because they're making money doing it. It is extremely lucrative despite the risk to them to end up in, you know, a prison somewhere. Um, it's, they can make a ton of money from it and they've gotten craftier about it. Anyway, to answer your question, if you pay for them, then you are funding that organization to continue going after others. And it's, it's sad to see. We get calls from hospitals, from schools, from charity organizations, folks that should never be under fire from these, from these folks, but they have no, no moral boundaries anymore. It seemed like early on they kind of did, but that kind of went away. So yeah, whenever possible, please don't pay ransom. There are certainly instances, and, and that's the FBI's take as well. They will tell you flat out, please do not pay for ransom. Um, I will say that in our experience that we have had clients come to us and say, Hey, all of our files are, you know, have this weird extension and I can't get to them. And we have a conversation with them to ask about their backups. And they say, yeah, we don't have any backups or it's been a long time. Mm -hmm. And so the next, unfortunately, the ugly part of the next conversation is, well, how much do you want your file? How badly do you want your files back? Mm -hmm. And in some cases we have had to work with clients to pay a ransom in order to get their, their files back. Uh, I will a couple of things I'll throw out there. If you do end up having to go down that path, which I hope no one ever does and ever, ever again in the future, um, uh, negotiate with the attackers. It's, it's a known deal that they will negotiate. Typically they come down up to 30%, sometimes more. Um, some charities have been able to drop that even further because they said, you know, we can't really afford this. Um, but let the FBI know to please don't hide it. I think a lot of the challenge we're having right now is that organizations that get hit don't want it to be known. So too many of us are keeping quiet about it and it's not getting public enough. It's not getting enough attention. Um, it's not getting the authorities looking at it. So I would certainly encourage everyone to, to be a lot more visible about it, even though it's, it's ugly to do. I think it's more important that we, we be open and honest about it and we all help each other track these evil people down. <laughs> Some other words are coming to mind, but I'll reframe. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 really a, a dilemma because you're saying, okay, I'm going to take the hit because it's the right thing to do to you know stop funding these these bad people. At the same time, you got a business to run, right? And um, and if you're a hospital that you've got patient records and all kinds of you know really super important information that that you need access to. So I I hope you know. Hope I never find myself in the role of making that decision or being forced to make that decision because that that would be a tough one. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, on, on cyber insurance? Uh, unfortunately, it is a recommended path these days. Uh, it's just it's ransomware has gotten so prevalent that until we've got a better handle on this, I think we're going to have to get cyber insurance. Most companies can't afford to cough up ten thousand, hundred thousand, a million, depending on the size of them, and the organization, and how many files or how much data that they've breached. So I, I do recommend cyber insurance, unfortunately. Um, okay. Yeah, speaking of which, it happened to here locally. It happened to the University of Utah. Uh, they got ransom uh, and they had, they had a ransomware uh, infection and they did everything right. They had backups. They, they were able to stop it. They were able to recover the data. But nowadays we're seeing a lot of uh, exfiltration of private data. As you mentioned, they've got patient data. You know, in this case, they had student data and the attackers threatened to release that student data unless they paid. 
So they ended up paying despite the fact they had everything in place to prevent it from happening. Yeah, that's a case where even if you if you have the backups, it doesn't matter because they're they're going to take private information and release it. So yeah, what do you do? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's that's really tough. So that comes back to back on the prevention side, using your MFA, you know, um, having the, uh, the 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 blacklisted for 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 different domains, etc. Um, well said. What about what what about the what are your thoughts in terms of the evolution of security services in the context of an MSP? Uh, but also, you know, because, you know, you look at Microsoft, they almost monthly add additional security services to their platform, right? And so some some of the, you know, smaller services are just being cobbled into their overall offering. Um, so do you see that with, with, you know, how does that affect your business? And, and let's look at like three different scenarios, like um, a company that's completely on-prem, uh, so, you know, then obviously what Microsoft was doing in, in with Azure or AWS is doing, it, it's not going to affect them as much. Uh, then you have a hybrid scenario and then, a, and then a company that's gone full cloud. How does that affect your business in, in, in those different scenarios? Yeah, I, we, we're on a constant battle to make sure we're providing customers the best of what's out there that makes the most sense for their dollar, right? Um, we can certainly recommend every security service out there because I think, uh, well, Security is all about layers. The more layers we can put in place, then the greater the chance of us blocking an attacker or preventing them from coming in. So, it's a tough question. Um, but for us, it's a constant battle of having to find what's best out there and what makes the most sense for our clients, depending on the size of the client. And then it depends on their on their environment, their architecture. Absolutely, uh, we've seen a lot of attacks on Exchange, for instance. So if you run an Exchange server on prem or even hybrid, you've been probably under attack lately. There have been some patches released. However, the cloud based one, for instance, isn't. So generally, most of them apply to all three platforms: uh, Microsoft Defender, um, some sandboxing options. Uh, let me explain that one. So sandboxing is the ability to grab an attachment out of your email, for instance, and run that attachment to see what it does rather than kind of scanning it and hoping you know what it does based on its contents. Um, those security layers are, I think it's more dependent on budget than anything else because some folks just can't afford to pay $25 a month per endpoint just to have that layer of protection where others may be uh, so focused on security that they can afford not to let one of those things go through, in which case they do want to pay that amount of money. And then, there's that uh, additional level, which is, do we want someone, uh, you know, a security operations center 24-7 monitoring our network for any kind of traffic? Now, there are some uh, some endpoint options that do that. Uh, MTR, um, Managed Threat and Response, for instance. So some endpoint protection, uh, antivirus protection companies are now offering Managed Threat and Protection, or MTR, to be my acronyms here, sorry. Um <laughs> And they will actually be actively involved. I saw that at a client this morning. We had a new client come on board. We installed uh, an MTR product on their in their environment. And the MTR team sent us an email last night and said, hey, by the way, we saw a fake Chrome update come in. It's in the zip file. We saw it be launched. We blocked it. We removed the zip file. We verified they're clean. You're good to go. And all I got was an email. That's so cool. in that case... Yeah, in that case, it's well <laughs> worth it for sure. And MTR is not, you know, not an inexpensive product, but to know that someone is there monitoring your system all the time and willing to take action on your behalf rather than just tell you about it uh, is, a, is kind of a game changer. That's excellent. Hey, um, let me ask you this. 
if you if you go and meet with a prospective customer uh, and they are 100% on prem just you know smb customer what are like the two or three most important questions or factors uh, that you will discuss with them in terms of considering migrating to the cloud um let's see i would start with What's your internet speed, really? Because when we move to the cloud, everyone needs to connect to that cloud. So we need to look at the bandwidth usage there, uh, what they're using on-prem. You know, uh, there are some very noisy programs out there. SQL can work very well over in cloud environment, but QuickBooks, for instance, struggles. And that's not something I want to work in the cloud unless we set up, you know, a remote desktop scenario for them. So um, let's see, I would start with A good question. So bandwidth, and then what type of apps you're using? Um, do you look at things like a you know total cost of ownership? Uh, do you look at any security factors? Yeah, security not so much. I, I I don't know that that's such a huge factor unless there's a physical security challenge. Um, certainly, I would look at total cost of ownership. Yeah, and because how how much do they need to scale, right? My on-prem server, I buy it, I'd set, and I may be able to upgrade some parts to it, but generally I've got to keep this thing three, five years. Uh, whereas in the cloud, if you double the size of your company tomorrow, we can a couple clicks of a button and you've got double the size of the server. So there are definitely some advantages, but it is more costly. There is no doubt about it. Uh, power is a concern, right? Do you have, uh, I guess that'd be a point I would make is downtime. If you were to lose internet, to lose power, uh, to, if your server were to break, how how costly is that for you as an organization? How long can you afford to be down? Because the cloud has multiple power sources, multiple internet paths, and they do you know they can always move things between data centers if something happens catastrophically to one of the data centers. So there's definitely an advantage to uptime as far as moving to the cloud goes, and we certainly encourage everyone to do that. And I think that's the way the world is, is moving. There's no doubt. Okay, makes a lot of sense. Hey, um, let's go back to uh, something that you said earlier on, or you know, right during the uh, the introduction, that you work as kind of a mentor for some of your colleagues. And I also noticed on your LinkedIn profile that um, it seems like you've taken a lot of different Tony Robbins course. Uh, can you? Can, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, that's, that's uh, he's super motivational, and uh, and I haven't obviously. Um, taking as many courses of you, but, uh, but I've, I've read some of his books and I like the framework that he provides in terms of looking at different issues and personal development. But could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, I guess it was when I met my, uh, now wife, uh, we decided to start our marriage off in uh, a very positive way. We wanted to make sure we had some solid ground. So we started doing some of this inner work. Uh, we wanted to give, one of the things I really appreciate about it is we have terminology, but that we can speak to with each other. We're not trying to use, I'm not trying to use guy words. She's not trying to use, you know, female words that we can't understand each other. Uh, the whole Venus Mars thing, rather that we have a common language between us that we can use. So that's one of the huge advantages. Um, I believe in constant inner growth. I, I think that uh, Tony Robbins says, if you're not growing, you're dying. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe in a constant learning curve. You know, it doesn't matter how old I'm 53 now, but I don't intend to stop learning ever. So that's a big part of it. Um, and it's also about kind of discovering who I am and what I am if I don't have fear in my way. So we did a week-long uh, event with his down in Florida prior to the pandemic, uh, where my wife actually got up on stage in front of 5,000 people. But that's a wow. that's good another, for her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's another story. Uh, a little intimidating for her. She loved it. But uh, um, it can be very 
uh, freeing. When we realize that the limits and the and we realize that most of the things that hold us back are either our fears, our beliefs in ourselves, our limiting beliefs about what we can do, and most of those are just fabrications or illusions that we've created based on stories from our past. Isn't that crazy? All that self-talk that uh, you know, we're we're making the story. Why didn't they respond to my email? What what, what did they mean by right. that? Right? <laughs> the mind goes crazy, and then you're like, because yep. they because they were busy. That's why they didn't respond. But why are you right. making all these assumptions? Right? And it's just yes. it's, it's amazing. And I, I agree 100 with what you just said, both about continual learning, and also just um, you know understanding what's real and what's not in terms of the stories we're telling. Um, how does that how does that parlay, or do, do you leverage any of those kind of uh, understandings in terms of your mentoring your colleagues in, in, in the office. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm, like I said, I'm big on training leadership management, new managers, particularly, I love training new managers on how to be better leaders. And a lot of that is mindset, right? Because they may have limiting mindset, mindset beliefs. They may be, not believe that they're qualified. They may not believe that they have the skills to do it. Um, and most of those, like I got where I am and I look back and I think, man, if I had just believed in myself, I could have gotten here a lot sooner. <laughs> so yeah, it's absolutely a factor. Um, when we are more self-confident, we're going to come across differently. People are going to read us differently. They're going to respond differently. They're going to be more uh, likely to, uh, accept the things that we're sharing with them. Um, yeah, the list just goes on and on, but it, it's a lot about mindset and, Good leaders must learn to lead themselves first and foremost. And, you know, if if my cup is full, as it were, metaphorically, then I have more to give. Whereas if I'm stressed and harried and not taking care of myself, I'm probably not going to be the best leader I could be if I You're were. You're not going to be a calming influence on the rest of the team. Right. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to create more stress and more, more angst out there rather than providing the calming yeah, demeanor, as you said. Great. Hey, well, with all that in mind, what, what kind of advice would you give to either people who are, you know, just getting started and they want to get into cybersecurity and or managed services um, or people who are like mid-career professionals and they want to make a pivot? What, what advice would you give? Uh, I think the best advice I ever gave someone, I, I see, I've interviewed thousands of people in my career and some of the most, I, I would say often the most successful people are those who run their own environment at home. I'm not saying go out and spend thousands and create this big expensive environment, but most companies don't want you playing on their production environment and learning, right? That's not what the learning environment should take place. And even a company our size can only provide so many training opportunities. So the most successful people I've seen will take questions where they got stuck, for instance, during the job and go home and recreate that environment at home and play with it and mess with it and break it. And it's okay to break it because it's your home environment. So, you know, you can, you can pick up old, old inexpensive gear. There's a lot of hand-me-down stuff. There's a lot of companies giving stuff away. There are a lot of uh, secondhand shops giving away computer equipment, set up your own home lab and play with it. There is no, there all the no offense to higher education. I believe in it completely. My <laughs> wife's a professor. I have to say that, but, uh, but you know, nothing beats in the field, what it really happens, what it looks like, what happens when I break it? Um, you know, how do I repair it? So uh, creating your own own home lab can really make a difference to your career. Yeah. it can be fun too. I mean, I'm not technical at all, but, uh, I, I have taken a couple ethical hacking courses and, nice. uh, it's, it's pretty cool when you actually get the stuff to work. It, for just for learning purposes, right? But uh, right. it is—it is—it's fun, you know. It's like, but um, 
Hey, well, I, um, I, I, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, learned a bit more about the, uh, the managed service space uh, and also enjoyed the, uh, the, the conversation about uh, continual learning. I, I, I noticed that uh, we have the similar mics here. Uh, that, so I, I'm, I'm curious, do you have a podcast that you do or do you, are you, do you, do you do something else or do you just have that, happen to have that one handy? <laughs> yeah, I, I am a tech, I am a tech guy. Right. Um, I'm big in audio video gear. I've got my home theater set up. So yeah, I do happen to have the same exact microphone as you do. Um, I do a lot of, I've done voiceover work in the past. Oh, wow. uh, so I was, I was potentially looking at doing some, uh, reading for charity, re- uh, book reading, uh, that kind of a thing. I don't do my own podcast at this time, uh, but I do join a lot of other podcasts. Um, and I've done some YouTube videos, those kind of things. So I just wanted something a little better than the average headset mic. Well, great minds think alike there. So, hey, great. Hey, James, <laughs> really, really enjoyed this conversation and uh, wish you a great uh, remainder of 2021. Thank you, Mark. It's been a lot. It's been a pleasure being here. I appreciate the invitation. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.